Vocês estão ouvindo o podcast Estudar Direito pelo Mundo. Neste podcast, você aprenderá com calma como você pode alcançar o sonho de realizar seu mestrado em Direito fora do Brasil. Envie suas perguntas e depoimentos no Instagram, arroba Klaus Lau. Hello, everyone. Uh, for this podcast episode, we're having Stephen Horowitz with us. He uh, is currently the director for the online legal English at Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, we are going to get to know him a little bit better and to talk a little bit about important things regarding legal English and how you can improve yours and also the role it plays for a foreign attorney to actually know legal English. So to get us started, thank you so much once again, Stephen, for being with us today. And would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Uh, as you said, my name is Stephen, uh, Stephen Horowitz. Um, I currently live in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, and I teach legal English at Georgetown Law School. All righty. Uh, yeah, that's, that's okay. <laughs> well, more. that's exciting. Yes. Uh, well, it, we, we can go ahead and learn a little bit more about your background. So um, where did you graduate from law school? How, how was a little bit of your career to get to this point? Oh, let's see. So I, I um, after, after university, I went to Japan and taught English for two years on something called the Japan Exchange Teaching Program or the JET Program, um, where I was an assistant language teacher and I would rotate between uh, six your high schools in a town in, in, a, in a somewhat small town in Japan, uh, right next to Toyota City, actually. So it was in the middle of all the, the auto manufacturing, kind of like the Detroit, Japan. Um, and then while I, was in, while I was in Japan, I applied to law school and ended up uh, going to Duke Law School in North Carolina. Um, Duke is famous for its basketball team, of course. Um, I, I was not recruited on a basketball scholarship. Um, so that's, that's not my forte necessarily. Uh, um, although I do remember when I was a first year law student, there were three third year law students who were um, basketball players, one of whom is very well known now. Um, Two of them were basketball players from the Princeton University basketball team, and they went on to law school. And at that time, Princeton University actually, when they played on it, actually had a very strong basketball team. And the third one was Quinn Snyder, who had been a starting point guard for the Duke basketball team when he was undergraduate. And then he went on to coach in college. And now he's the, see the coach of the Utah Jazz? He's a professional NBA coach. So he was, I, I never really met him, but, uh, uh, but I didn't play basketball, but, but I was, I was a basketball adjacent, I guess, kind of close to basketball. Anyway, yeah, so I was at Duke Law School. And then after that, while I was there, I went back to Japan a couple times, um, once to intern for a, a Japanese lawyer uh, for about a year, and then a second time to study at Waseda University in Tokyo, I did a little independent study on bankruptcy law in Japan. Um, then when I came back, I, I joined, uh, after when I graduated from law school, I started working at a law firm in New York City called Strook and Strook and Levan. Uh, and I always thought it was funny because 
that's the only law firm I knew of where it has the same name twice, Strook and Strook and Levan. And I looked at the history and there were two brothers, I think, who had started the law firm. And then at some point, somebody named Levan came along. Um, so I always, I always thought that was kind of funny. But, uh, and I, I practiced, I was in the structured finance group for a little bit. And then I, I uh, did bankruptcy law, corporate bankruptcy law um, while I was there. Um, and then after that, I decided I didn't want to practice law. Um, and I ended up working, but I ended up working for a company that worked on bankruptcy cases but not as a law firm. It was a little complicated, but they would, in a big corporate case, there's a, a lot of claims that are filed. And then there's also a voting process where the, the creditors vote on the plan of reorganization. And uh, the company that I worked for, we, we managed all of that. So we worked with uh, the law firms and with the bankruptcy departments. Um, and then eventually I decided that, that I really wanted to get back to teaching and I really always enjoyed teaching English. So I, um, I decided to do some training in, in English as a second language teaching. And then uh, eventually I did a master's in TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages in New York City while I was working. Um, and, uh, and then after that is when I started working for St. John's Law School, uh, teaching legal English there, growing the program, and eventually um, serving as the director of legal English programs. Uh, and then from about two, almost two years ago, um, I accepted a, a job, a position at Georgetown Law School to be the director of online legal English programs. And now I'm a legal English lecturer at Georgetown Law School. So that's my, that's my general path. And there's a lot of details that I've, I've left out, but uh, maybe, another, maybe another time we can get into those also. Well, that's, that's very exciting. It sounds like you, you definitely uh, had opportunities to explore a lot of things in the spectrum of, of you know, uh, uh, the law career in general. So that's very exciting. And, it, and I can really tell that Japan kind of played a big role in your life. So that's very exciting. Yeah, it really did. I don't think, I think my career would be very different if I had not had the experience of living abroad um, of, of getting to know another country, meeting other people from other countries in that country, things like that all have a, have a huge, have a huge impact on you. That's great. And, and I know also you can, you can, uh, hold a conversation in several languages, right? So other than Japanese, also you, you can speak some other languages. Am I right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can, I can get by in Spanish. Um, I, in the past, I have gotten by in Portuguese. Um, uh, Pode falar in Portuguese, um pouco, right? I don't know, I don't know about my accent. Falo in Portuguese, in Portuguese, um pouco. Muito legal, right? Perfect, muito legal. <laughs> I spent a little bit of time in Brazil, so I, I, since I knew Spanish, that made it a little easier. And I've tried That's to pick great. up a little bit of Chinese and a little bit of Korean, but, but I, I, don't, I can't hold a conversation in those. Um, I, I had one time where I went to Japan, I mean, sorry, I went to Brazil. Um, and I should mention when I lived in Japan, I lived in a town and I, what I learned quickly, I didn't know anything about the town before I got there, 
but it had a huge population of Brazilian immigrants. Um, because at the time, I think Brazil's economy was, was struggling and Japan needed labor. And a lot of Brazilians of Japanese ancestry were coming over to Japan and, and working there. <clears throat> and so I met a lot of Brazilians or Japanese Brazilians when I was in Japan. <clears throat> Sorry. And then when I went to Brazil, to Sao Paulo, I went to Liberdade, of course. Um, and I found there's a small museum, the Museum of Japanese Immigration or Japanese of Brazilian Immigration to Japan or Japanese of, of Japanese Immigration to Brazil. And that was wonderful to see. And I stayed with a friend who was Japanese Brazilian. And he took me out one night to get together with his friends. And that was the most linguistically confusing night I've ever had because some people spoke Portuguese primarily, and some people had come from Japan and were really better in Japanese, and some people could speak English pretty well. So I was, we were drinking beers and having fun talking and everything and dancing, but I'm talking with people and shifting languages, you know, between three languages. And that was very, that was when my brain almost exploded, I think. That's a, yeah, fun. that sounds super fun, though. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's so nice. Well, but I, th but there's... I, can't, I can't do math in other languages. So, so that's how I think. I think that's a real test of fluency. So I, I would not say I'm fluent in any of the other languages. I can only do math in my head in English. Well, uh, I think it's also worth mentioning that, that you also co-host a podcast as well as... Uh, have played some some frees before a while, right? And th that even led you to Brazil in a tournament, if I'm if I'm correct. Oh yes, yes, yes. I I do. I co-host a podcast called U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast um, with uh, my friend and former colleague uh, Daniel Edelson, um, and we could talk about that more too. Uh, and yes, I went to Brazil three years in a row because I found out about an ultimate frisbee tournament in Guarujá, um, that the, uh, the community of ultimate Frisbee players in Sao Paulo had, had organized. And I went to the first one and it was amazing. Um, and it was such a great experience and everybody was so wonderful that, that I went back the next two years that they had the tournament. And I just wanna say Guarujá is, I know that it's like just a regular beach in Brazil. I, I think of it as kind of like Brazil's version of Jersey, of the Jersey Shore, of the New Jersey Shore, you know, just kind of like the everybody beach. But compared to the US, that beach is gorgeous. All the beaches there were just beautiful. Um, so I, I look forward to going back someday. Um, so the, fantastic. We do love, the, we do love like our that. beaches as well, yes. Oh yeah, oh my gosh, that, that is just, you guys are very lucky. Um, the, the podcast was something that um, Daniel and I started because we wanted to, uh, I, I've always thought that the, the, or what I've learned in a lot of my, my studies and my, my own research is that the best way to learn vocabulary and learn a language is through what's called extensive reading. And extensive reading means reading uh, reading a lot, um, reading things that are easy to read, so where you understand 90% of the vocabulary, so you don't have to look at a dictionary. So you can read with, with some amount of, of 
fluency um, and not having to stop and reading things you enjoy. And this is how children learn to read growing up in, in schools. There's a whole curriculum around it and making books available. And, and it's not something you can force kids. You don't want to have to force kids to do it or force people to do it. Because if you're forced to do it, it's not enjoyable. But if you enjoy it, you'll do it a lot. Um, so there's usually a period in our childhood where we discover reading and stories and we just want to keep reading and read more stories. And then we become adults and it kind of shifts away. We read because we have to. And maybe sometimes we read for enjoyment. But the best way to learn a language uh, is to be able to, to read for enjoyment and read things that are easy. Um, so there are a lot of books that have been created in curriculum where there's um, easier versions of things to read in English. Um, so you can do extensive reading. That doesn't really exist in the field of law. Law is very sophisticated, complicated uh, language. And so there aren't, the same kind of materials don't exist. So I've always tried to, to you know, I, I built up a library of novels, you know, easier and more difficult things related to law that, that, that my students can always borrow and read. Um, John Grisham novels, have you ever, do you know John Grisham? He wrote, uh, a famous novel years ago called The Firm, um, which turned into a movie with Tom Cruise. And he's written some other, a bunch of other books that have turned into movies and they're all exciting thrillers. So they're fun to read, but they're also about lawyers and law. So I, I think that's, that's really good stuff to read. And it's even harder to find materials for listening to improve your listening because Extensive reading is great for building vocabulary and building reading speed and reading fluency because if you're reading something that's easy, you, you're reading longer groups of words or longer strings or chunks of words and your brain learns to process bigger groups of words automatically. So when you first learn a language, you, you process one word at a time. <coughs> oh, excuse me. I'll let them then take a little drink. <laughs> no problem, no problem. While, while you're at it, um, so, so it, that's very interesting. And that talks a little bit about your, your approach to, to teaching English. So I'm really interested in, in understanding uh, uh, more of what you have to say. But, but I can definitely tell you uh, that, th that we can tell you have a lot of experience with it just from, uh, from you know, teaching a lot. And definitely, I'm sure you, you've studied uh, deeply into learning a language and yeah that's very very interesting about the different approaches and especially the this idea of extensive reading especially focused in legal english right it just doesn't really exist so and and so things like your podcast are great um any any podcasts you can listen to in in english or i guess when i want to work on my portuguese i'll listen to some of your interviews that you do in in portuguese and that'll be really good for me um, so that's where, so Daniel and I created our podcast to sort of talk about legal topics, but in a way that's a little bit easier to understand. Um, and we've created transcripts for it, and we're in the process of also creating study activities to help you, to help students improve not just their vocabulary and their legal English, but also their, their listening, um, and, uh, 
and especially the the connection between listening and grammar. Do do you want me to talk about that now? Yeah, that would be great. We can we can go on on like what is Lego English? What does it mean to different people in different places? And and definitely yeah. just that's a that's a that's a really interesting question because legal English for some people it means learning key legal English words you know words that have to do with the law and maybe they already are fairly fluent in a language but there's certain phrases or certain ways of saying things that are not familiar for other people I think um, legal English just means learning law but doing it in English. Um, and then for other people, legal English means using legal content or law-related content to help people improve their English. So use something that's actually going to be interesting and relevant, but use it in a way that's helping people improve their, their English. And, and um, I think I tend towards that last definition more. My teaching tends to be a lot of using legal content in English, but using it in a way that helps people improve their language. But I really like trying to integrate that as much as possible. So teach legal content, but then recognizing where, where students might be struggling or getting stuck because of language or maybe because of cultural information that they don't have, and then focusing on what what language help they need to be able to uh, understand or comprehend the content or to perform tasks like, like writing a memo. So I teach the content, but then pay attention to what students need and focus on the language help they need to be able to function. So it's not grammar in a vacuum. It's not vocabulary in a vacuum. It's in the context of, of something they need to do to perform in, in, in law school, for example. Got it, got it. That makes a lot of sense. And, and into that context as well, uh, I, I remember when we talked previously, you mentioned something about ear training and listening and how that plays a huge role as well. Uh, would you mind uh, expanding on that a little bit as well? Yeah, sure. So what, what happens a lot in law school in the US is um, students who are non-native English speakers, um, when they go to write a paper, um, like for their legal writing class or maybe for some other class where they have to write something, the professors notice that there's certain language issues. And, and, and lawyers and law professors in particular are very, very, um, what's the word? I know the word in Japanese but I'm trying to think of a good word in English. Anyway, they're sticklers. They, you know, if there's a comma missing, if there's an extra space. I mean, when you're a lawyer, you learn to proofread a lot and you learn to, you know, if you don't catch one little thing and your boss notices it, it makes you look bad. So that's the mentality. <clears throat> that's the mentality of law professors and, and a lot of lawyers in, in US legal culture. So they see this and they say, oh, this person's leaving out commas, this person misspelled something, this person didn't use past tense when they should have. This person has grammar issues. Gotta, you know, somebody, somebody help them fix the grammar issues. Get an ESL teacher and help them fix the grammar issues. Or um, there's actually a, a, a product called Core Grammar for Lawyers and it's a, a software. 
Um, and a lot of law schools use this. And all law students, not just international or non-native English speaking students, all law students have to show that they can, that they're familiar with the grammar. <clears throat> you know, and it's a lot of those little picky little things. And I, I think there's a problem with that approach because it, the, the definition of a native English speaker or a native speaker of a language is somebody who knows what sounds right. It's that simple. If, you're, if you know what sounds right, you're a native speaker, right? If I say something, by definition, it's kind of correct because I'm a native speaker, right? It's kind of unfair if you're not a native speaker to, to know what sounds right. So I think there's a disconnect and, and a lot of, if, if you're an American law professor, most, most teachers don't sort of realize that, that they don't know if you're a non-native speaker, you don't know what sounds right. That's the whole, that's the whole point. That's the whole problem. That's the challenge. Um, and a common strategy that teachers will tell students is before you turn in this paper, read it out loud and then you'll, you know, and listen for things. So you'll know if you got anything, anything sounds funny. But that doesn't help non-native English speakers so much because if you don't know, you don't know, right? And that's why I think the listening is so important and yet it never really gets taught. And when teachers, even ESL teachers teach listening, a lot of times what they're really doing is teaching comprehension. Listen to this text, now answer these questions. And they're not even really teaching it, they're testing comprehension. All you're doing is assessing whether you understood it or not. It's not helping you actually improve your listening. So one way to improve your listening is extensive listening, which is listening to lots of things that you enjoy in English that's comprehensible, that where you know 90% of the vocabulary, but that's hard to find. Um, but the other piece of it is a lot of the errors that the professors point out are things like, um, you didn't use the, the correctly, or you didn't use a uh, or the, you used the wrong preposition. You added an S at the end of this verb uh, and you shouldn't have, or you used uh, a count noun instead of a non-count noun, which is also about adding an S or not adding an S. And these are not, these are all arbitrary things. Prepositions, there's no rules really, they're arbitrary. Uh, articles, the and uh and an and when to use them, that there are rules, but they're so complicated and there's so many exceptions. And I remember my linguistics professor saying to me one time, it's, a, it's, it's there's no point in teaching articles. You can't teach it. And, and you think, how did we learn them? How did I learn to say when to say the and when to say an and uh? It's all by sound. It's all just by listening. And so, um, I, I think the, the key is to listen to something, like take a, take a transcript and take out all the thes or take out all the prepositions and then go in and try to put them into the text and then listen to the audio and test and see, did I get them all? Were there any I didn't hear? And then check it against the original um, and do that several times. And then you train your ear to start hearing the, the thes and the prepositions and the other words. Um, and the other, pro the other challenge is that those, especially grammar related words or parts of words, those are the parts of speech that we don't stress, that we don't emphasize when we talk. 
those are the parts, those are the words that get reduced or are said very softly, or they, you know, the becomes the something, right? It's just a little sound at the beginning of a word. There's a lot of connected speech. So training your ear to hear those is really what's going to help you to hear the S endings, to hear the prepositions. I mean, that's, that's ultimately, if you want to develop a sense of what sounds right, that's, that's I think, how you do it. Um, it's not easy to do and it's hard to set up and I'm still working on, on ways to, to do it because it can end up with activities that can feel repetitive or boring for students. And if it's boring or repetitive, then you don't want to do it. I know when I study something, if it's boring or repetitive, it's hard to stay with it. As, as a child, you don't mind repeating things a lot, right? You read ch children's books over and over and over. Uh, my kids like the same books, the same movies over and over and over. But as an adult, you need more stimulation and, and it's harder to do. I think that's one of the main differences in learning languages as an adult versus a child is just your tolerance for repetitiveness. So anyway, yeah, that's that's sort of my my philosophy on on how improving listening is really the way to help students with their grammar. And that's what Daniel and I are going to keep working on with the U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language podcast. That's incredible because I, I often find myself in, in like a plateau where I feel that I can communicate well already in, in all kinds of ways, whether writing or speaking. But at the same time, I also feel that difficulty sometimes on, you know, is this correct or does that sound right? I love that, that approach. So it, it might be the key to overcome the plateau. Yeah. And, and another thing I think is helpful is taking transcripts and reading them out loud, either by yourself or with a partner, because I once uh, in a class, I stumbled on that by accident. Um, I made a recording of myself and my teaching assistant talking about a case that we were studying in class. And then I had the students listen to it. And then I gave them the transcript. And with a partner, they had to read their part out loud with each other. And as I was listening to them, I realized I left in all the uhs and um and, and uh, uh, er, um. So when the students were talking, when they were reading it, they were reading all of that. And I thought, wow, they, they really sound like native English speakers now. So I think a way to sound more American, if that's your goal, or British, or whatever language you're trying to learn, is to take transcripts of things that you can, where you can hear what it sounds like, and then you go and read it, and read it out loud. And you'll start to get the patterns, the rhythms, and also, I think your brain will start to anticipate where the, you know, the little grammar words and the function words sort of pop up. I, I don't know, it's, I haven't fully tested it out, but it's a, I, it seems like it should work. It does sound <laughs> like it for sure. Well, yeah. uh, let me also ask, the, so in, in your context on your day-by-day -day activities, is it the LOM students uh, in a U.S. law school that you find the most, or, or, or is there like a, a, a public that corresponds to most of your students uh, regarding legal English? Oh, yeah, right now, I mean, I'm in teaching at St. John's before and teaching at Georgetown, my students are all LLM students. Um, I'm generally not working with students outside of that. Um, but, but of course, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of 
lawyers and law students from other countries, um, but I'm not, I'm not generally teaching them. They're just people that I get to know. Or maybe, maybe I'm teaching them through the podcast if they're listening to the podcast, but not directly one-on-one or you know, in a classroom. Got it, got it. Well, and are those uh, specifically LOMs that are studying in the university you teach or does the university offer programs that people could just come and I don't know, like summer programs, et cetera? Oh, that's interesting. Um, yes, at Georgetown, it's all, it's, it's all LLM students. And Georgetown has, I think, if not the biggest, one of the biggest LLM programs of any law school in the US. I think there's like 350 LLM students, which I think is about, I, as, I think St. John's Law School has like 350 or maybe 500 total students. So, you know, and a lot of other law schools are much smaller. So, I mean, the, the size is really amazing. Um, uh, I don't know if there's other programs. I know that, that I, I created an online legal English program for Georgetown a course. And the idea is for the course eventually to be available to anyone outside of the university. Uh, but right now, I think just because of the, the technology setup um, at, at the university, it's not possible to make it more generally available. But at some point, um, I think that's something that they might like to do. Um, but if but if uh, if anybody's interested, I can uh, I'm happy. I just you know, feel free to get in touch. And if a lot of people are interested, maybe we can set something up. Fantastic! That sounds. And, then, and now today, it's a lot easier to teach remotely as well. So you know, even if we can't go somewhere, we can we can do it. Yeah, definitely. Well, Stephen, I I thank you so much for your time and willingness to to share some of your. Uh, expertise with us, some of your experience today. Uh, maybe to wrap up today's episode, would you like to leave some final words for those who are maybe struggling to, to keep on their journey to speak English well? Yeah, let's see. Um, advice for, for, I mean, a lot of it is you just have to stay with it, which of course is challenging. But um, The key in my, in my view is always, and if I were to start learning another language, what I would do is try to find things that are easy to read and listen to uh, in English and not just about law, but about any topic. Um, because the more that you can do of that, the more your, your, langu you, your language will improve and then you can do other things with that. Um, I hope that's helpful. <laughs> For sure it is. And uh, I also make sure to to find some, you know, transcripts in Portuguese to make sure that this actually reaches uh, those who are in this quest, for sure. Yes, yes. I When I lived in Japan, the most helpful thing for me was reading comic books. I learned so much from reading comic books and children's books. So I, I would recommend, I always recommend those if you, if you enjoy those. That's fantastic. Well, once again, thank you so much for participating with us today. And yeah, thank, thank you, you everybody thank for listening. Yeah, thanks, Claudio. Thanks for having me. And I, I, I now I want to officially invite you to be a guest on, on our podcast at some point. So we'll, we'll discuss that at another point. Oh, sounds great. Sounds great. I, I definitely would love to. <laughs> thanks, guys. Bye.